0: Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. We play up the fact that HUD is dead. Long live HUD! We depressed the stock to the point where we can buy 50%. 51. uh, Not counting the mezzanine. It could work. It should work. It would work. It's working already. Conversations About Collaboration, Episode 64. Brian Elliott, Executive Leader of the Future Forum, joins me again. This time, we talk about his new book, How the Future Works, Leading Flexible Teams to Do the Best Work of Their Lives. We also discuss team-level agreements, hybrid work, and the need for experiments. Let's get it on. Brian Elliott, welcome back. Congratulations on the new book.
1: Thanks, Phil. Uh, Great to be back with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's get right into it. Um, I, I've been following Future Form pretty much since you started. And it does strike me that there's, um, I, I think, a need to put everything that you guys have been doing into one portable uh, entity. Um, before we talk about specific topics of the book, um, did you find the, the process enjoyable? Because I have talked to authors who said, oh, yeah, it was just in different places and I had piece it together. And I've talked to other authors who said it was actually really challenging because it was in different pieces and uh, places and I had to piece it together.
1: Well, it was it was both, right? Um, so it was actually the three of us—myself, uh, Helen Cup, and Sheila Subramanian—who wrote it. And even the first step of that was I knew that I didn't want to do this uh, by myself because Helen and Sheila had been my my co-founders and and uh, and really getting this uh, Future Forum up and off the ground. But also, we had different things that we wanted to say to some degree, and really wanted to get the word out. So. The first step in this was even talking to some publishers who looked at us and said three authors no way um, you know th- how do you get three people to pull this together and it's turned out to be a huge blessing on a number of fronts uh, one of which was just the amount of work that goes into writing a book which you know but with three of us we could really jam on it hard over the period of a couple of months you know we did a lot of work getting the proposal together in the first place thinking through the flow and what we wanted to get across and getting really clear about that but then some degree of division of labor, right? We would do an interview together with somebody and then one of us would take the lead of figuring out, you know, the summary coming out of it. Uh, we would we took responsibility for divvying up chapters and doing drafting and review cycles and all the rest of it. And really, because we'd worked together already for a couple of years, kind of had established a rhythm and a rapport, which made it a lot easier to do it. It also became really essential over the course of the time of writing the book, editing the book, proofreading the book, all of it. Each of us went through all kinds of chaos in our lives, right? I ended up uh, with an illness that ended up in the hospital briefly. Sheila's got two small kids where COVID meant that you know schools were open, schools were closed, and the, and the sort of madness back and forth. And Helen wins the prize because she had a baby in the course of this. So you know, if any one of us had tried to do this on our own, all of those bumps along the way would have been almost impossible to sort of sort our way through. Uh, but because we trust each other and we developed a, a working rhythm, ended up being a really fantastic way to to make this happen.
0: It strikes me that it's an interesting metaphor for our world and the present world of work and the future world of work, because you're trying to get something done potentially in different time zones at different times with different schedules using somewhat different tools. Um, Is that fair to say?
1: Absolutely. I mean, part of it was we were under different time zones and or just different times of day when we were literally available to do these things. And traveling as well too. So I did some of the work when I was on the East Coast visiting uh, one of my kids, as an example. The um, Sheila and Helen, because they both have younger kids than I do, were you know trying to figure out what's the day part that works for writing, both for them personally as well as you know giving care, given caregiving duties and, and other things going on in their lives. And then we figured out that you know, ta-da, Saturday morning was the the time that the three of us could get together and do some review cycles and go back and forth on something live. And so we just sort of figured out there are, this is what's part of what's in the book. There are team agreements that you come up with around what's the time that we can all be available together for each other to do that, the sort of live in-person conversations that are the gnarlier, harder ones like, okay, I'm really not happy with the flow in this chapter because I think it's missing something and let's talk about what that is live because that's easier than trying to write it all out versus the act of drafting the act of you know putting together an outline reviewing it all of that can be done asynchronously so super heavy users of google docs obviously in doing this some lovely long spreadsheets of tracking you know who's who's where on uncertain uh, things and then asana just from a project management perspective and pulling it all together because you know a book itself is a major project and undertaking
0: it's funny that you mentioned that because from my most recent book, I'd asked my designer um, if she was okay with Slack and she said, sure. And I showed her the basics. But then as we worked on different elements of the book, the fact that it was all in Slack made it more complicated for her because she couldn't find things. I said, well, what if we use Doist or another project management tool? She goes, I don't want another application notifying me. But towards the end, of the project said, you know what? Can we use To Doist?" And I showed her the app in Slack that you could use to add things so they were integrated and all that. But I find it interesting that you didn't just use Slack. Um, and as good as a tool as it is, as much of a fanboy as I am, it can't do everything.
1: Yeah. Well, you wouldn't use Slack itself to compose and draft a book, <laughs> which is <laughs> the think.
0: most fundamental.
1: But but Slack was the backbone. It's really interesting because so here's part of the challenge. I just assume Slack is in the picture because I wouldn't do it without Slack being in the picture. So when we've got, and it's not just the three of us, when we've got our editor plugged in, we've got a book agent that's plugged in, we've got members of our own team. So, you know, Dave Macney has been out, you know, tracking down interview subjects and getting people's uh, signatures on release forms. All of that is happening and being tracked inside of Slack in terms of where are we on this when people have a question it's back to the usual stuff too of like, how do I find the latest, whatever it is, whether it's a document, whether it's the to-do list, we pin it to a channel, it's bookmarked Mm. at the top, so you know where to find it. But Slack becomes the central collaboration hub. You then are using the right tool to do the right thing for, you know, it's DocuSign on getting signatures on, uh, you know, from executives, it's Google docs heavily for all the written content. And so, We've had other parts of the experience that had to been done in email, and um, I'm pretty confident that everyone has heard me gripe 15 times, probably weekly, about the fact that that the email threads are all broken, they're disjointed. I can't keep track of where the latest version of X is in email. And so we've actually pulled in publishers, we've pulled in book publicists, we've pulled in other people into shared channels in Slack to do a lot of the collaboration externally as well as internally.
0: You're more persuasive than I am when I try to get people to use something other than email, they typically put up guards. And I actually start my new book with an example of a publishing project in which I said, look, I just don't want to use email. I prefer Slack, but I'll take Teams, I'll take Zoom, I'll take whatever. And even though we did have what I thought was a team-level agreement. I had nothing in writing and I had no direct authority. So I I found it interesting looking at how the future works about how you would attempt to enforce that because it seems like a team level agreement is going to be decentralized and why group A may complain that they get so much flexibility. Whereas group B says, oh, that's crazy. We don't get any of that. Now, there might be reasons for that. Like you said, Salesforce might, uh, sales folks might need to collaborate in person more than other groups of folks. If you're a writer, yes, you can do that more or less in a solitary way. But I don't necessarily think that there's one right answer, but I do think that the book broaches a lot of interesting questions about agreeing on those things because different teams and purposes and objectives are going to call for different uh, tools and core hours and all that, right?
1: That's absolutely right. And that's a big part of what the book is about. So there's flexibility in terms of where people work. Um, As you know, from reading some of our research and our talks in the past, schedule flexibility is even more important to people and really essential. But figuring out how you make that work, there, there are people out there that are proposing what are essentially one size fits all models, right? That are sitting there saying, our entire organization is going to come into the office on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. In the entire organization doesn't even interact with one another. Matter of fact, they don't show up to the same buildings. And within those you know, companies are teams that just have very different rhythms. So a team-level agreement is a core concept that we really um, have a lot of affinity for in the book, and we get into how they work. And from my team's perspective, it's fairly straightforward. There's a dozen of us, and we have agreements about how freq- frequently we get together, which is once a quarter for a week, where it's very immersive and a lot of time together. Um, how we deal with, you know, schedules. So we have core collaboration hours. We keep all of our meetings between 9 a.m. and 1 p.m., one-on-ones, team meetings, even meetings with other cross-functional teams because that way folks on the East Coast as well as the West Coast, you know, have an easy enough time managing it and you've got choices outside of that about when you do heads-down work. Most people are sit there and say, I either need to do that top-down thing or, I, or that bottoms-up thing. I'm not sure how it's going to work. And in the book, we get into this because there are other people who've done it at scale. So Genentech is one of my favorite examples because Genentech at the executive level basically said, what's the menu of options that we're going to make available to people? How do we think about not only location flexibility, but schedule flexibility, not just in terms of days, but part-time jobs, right? How do we allow for job sharing, other concepts like that? They figured out the rules of the road at the top level, but then they allowed business units and functions to go and create their own team agreements because the needs of an R&D organization which has people that need to come into labs is very different from a finance organization is very different from a sales organization and we're seeing a lot of those patterns develop in different companies where product and engineering teams often figure out that it is the week of the quarter that you want to get together or the week of the month that you want to get together for more Immersive time together. Where sales teams, what I'm seeing more often, are saying, "Hey, if you're going to come into the office this week, let's center on Thursdays or Tuesdays, just that way, so that you know if you if you come in, if you're going to come in, are there are other people from my team going to be around? So making that easy is really important too.
0: Really important, but really um, something that's easier said than done. Um, in the book you write about faux fo- flexibility, say more.
1: Yeah, so faux flexibility comes in a bunch of different uh, flavors. One of which is, you know, the one that we're actually most concerned about is we know from our research that flexibility is most highly desired by historically marginalized groups. We've seen this now for a couple of years where the desire for flexibility is higher among Black, Hispanic, and Asian American office workers than white office workers. We know that schedule flexibility is really essential for caregivers, especially women with children. And so when we looked at the data as people started coming back and saw that the people coming back more often are white men, executives, non-caregivers, what you run is the risk that, um, that you know, you've got proximity bias at work coming into it. The faux flexibility part comes in uh, when, when the executive suite gets involved in this. The issue becomes, if you are saying, I want my team to be flexible, you all can work from home more often, figure out what works for your team, but the executives are all coming back five days a week into the office, they're all showing up, you know, on the same floor or the same building and headquarters, the signal that they're sending is very different from what they're saying to people. And the concern that those people are going to have, and we see this most strongly in caregivers, is around that issue of proximity bias. Are you going to reward me based on the outcomes that I deliver? Or are the rewards going to go to Jenny who shows up at 8 and leaves at 8 p.m.? Right? That's the faux flexibility concern.
0: I actually quoted that stat from Future Forum in my new book. It was something like two quarters ago, thirty-seven percent of exec surveys said that the proximity bias thing was their number one concern, and that had uh, increased to I think it was forty or forty-one percent in the next quarter. If I'm not that's mistaken. right.
1: It's, that's right. It's forty-one percent in in, in Q one of this year, which is good news in a way. Forty-one percent of executives saying that proximity bias is their top concern about you know a flexible setup is good. I just wish it was hundred percent, you know, we're concerned about uh, that particular issue.
0: Yeah. But there is that chasm from what I understand. And even though I relied a lot for, for the new book on future forum, there are plenty of other places, as you know, doing interesting research. And I think it was Sherm it's something like 69 or 70% of managers wanted people back Monday through Friday, nine to five.
1: I've heard all kinds of stats out there and seen a lot of... We've also seen it in the headlines in terms of putting pressure, people putting pressure on getting folks back into the office. If you ask execs, part of the issue is it really is mostly at the executive suite, not at the frontline manager level. Mm-hmm. So the executive suite is the one that's most likely to say they want to be in the office themselves three to five days a week. 72% of execs who are, who've been working remotely want that versus 24% of individual contributors want to be in three to five days a week. So that's, that's where you sort of see this chasm and this disconnect between the two. And it's it's not surprising when we dig into it from a research perspective. What we see is executives themselves have a better experience than their individual employees do. They afford themselves more flexibility for one thing, right? They've got more autonomy and more ability to make their own decisions and choices. They've got better situations, whether it's at home or in the office, right? If you've got the ability to go into an office and be in an office and close the door that's different from people that we are plunking down in open floor plan areas which by the way you know average square footage per employee has shrank 50% over the course of the past couple of decades oh okay we more people into less space and there's a couple of great academic studies that have shown that open floor plans actually inhibit interaction they don't grow it because what happens is if you're, if you're in one of those areas, and this certainly happened to me, you, you sit down and you put your headphones on, right? Uh, because you're trying to focus and get work done. And then all of the interaction actually becomes virtual interaction anyway. It's chat and messages and other, other things. The, I don't want people to get confused that what we're saying here is go fully remote. It's how do you blend the two together to be more effective? Because most people for their heads down work are telling us they're more effective doing it from home. But you've got to provide choice and you got to lo- let the individual decide.
0: Yeah, well, I, I could rant for hours about open office plans. I remember in my college professor days how uh, the previous dean of the business school wanted to move to the open office because it seemed really chic and hip and the professors were revolting. Um, yeah, maybe some of them aren't that open to change. That's a different discussion. But just logistically, if I'm meeting with a student, there are privacy laws yeah. Right? I can't really talk to you about something and I need a private space. So I, I agree that hybrid is harder. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned this the square footage piece. As I mentioned, when we were talking before, I just finished reading after Steve about Apple and initially when they built the huge $5 billion uh, Pantheon to Apple, which um, I think opened maybe 2019, they wanted to put 12,000 people in it. And they said, you know, what? we can do 14. And that actually meant less space for a lot of the engineers. And yes, if you were an an ex- executive, you still have your own office. But that really was an issue for folks.
1: I think I think that's part of the challenge that we're that we're facing. The people are facing now is what's the right way to think about the physical workspace. So you know, even at Slack, our line is digital first doesn't mean never in person. We know that there's about twenty percent of the population out there of office worker population globally that needs space, right? Whether it's because home is not conducive or they just need the physical separation of leaving home, going to work and getting back to get the break. And we should make sure that we're all providing for that. But what most, when you talk to workplace people, what you'll, what we found is in most cases, those open desks were at best 50% utilized during the week anyway, because people would find other places to try to get their work done. What was out, what was blown out of the water was your demand for event space, for conference rooms, for all the rest of it, right? That was already bad pre-pandemic. What a lot of organizations are now doing and Miller Knoll, who's a great partner to us in this, is leaning into is how do we rethink the, the role of the office as space for team events, for collaboration, for bringing people together that's got to be much more modular because you need to be able to expand and contract how much of it you've got in terms of how you use it, group of 16 versus 50 versus five. And weeks that it's heavy usage and weeks that it's lighter usage, because there are going to be waves around the quarter or the month that we all need to figure out how we actually manage. So I think what we're going to see is it's this major shift that we've seen already, which is. The physical office as being the definition of where work gets done and the nine to five being you know, the thing that you could jam pack full of meetings is what we've got to deal with. What we want to get to is a world in which we've got the flexibility to allow teams to come together when it's safe to do so in places where they can get together while allowing them to stay digitally connected because the digital part then becomes you know your headquarters for sharing knowledge, sharing information, for keeping you aligned throughout the course of not only, you know, the initial, you know, launch of a project but all the way through the completion.
0: I'm pretty sure you uh, hacked into my computer, looked at some of my notes because I, I I did write down the Miller Knoll statistic from the book and let me get this straight before the pandemic 80% of the space was allocated to desks and only 20% to collabor- collaborative environments and they wanted to basically invert that.
1: Yeah, and there's 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 a lot to that, right? Which is how do you think about um Uh, We also talk a lot about Dropbox in the book and some of what they've done in terms of Dropbox Studios, which is essentially saying to employees, we know some of you need individual space. We'll make sure that you are afforded that and you have that. We're going to focus our own space on what was that 20% on that collaborative space for people to come together in groups. And that's just a very different calculus than we have to think about the majority of the usage of real estate being for housing individuals doing heads down work. And so it's just a great opportunity to sort of rethink the purpose. Of shared space in the first place? And how do you redesign it in a way that is more conducive to interactions among groups? Like one of the things that we try to do, as an example, is we try to cross fertilize on sites. We try to make sure that the research team that, that Future form works with extensively and the Future Forum on sites were back to back, right? So that <clears> people could come and go to those two events, interact with, with each other, you know, there in the room. And that's the kind of thing that you want to foster more of.
0: Yeah, I'm completely with you on that. And you touched earlier on something that's another theme of the book about how work is not a place you go to. I'm probably bastardizing this, but it's a thing you do. Yeah, and it's yeah. not a to- it's not a time; it's an activity.
1: Yeah, you know, and uh, Dell is actually the I'm pretty sure the the people where we got that specific phrase from because they have a collaborative workspace, um, com- <laughs> a collaborative work program that they had put in place even before the pandemic, um, which is they were already trying to provide people with a lot of flexibility. One of my favorite stories in the book is actually Erin DeFay. Erin is a a vice president at Dell. She's built her career there, but she's the um, spouse of an active military member. And she first started working at Dell decades ago in Austin, or a decade plus ago uh, in Austin. And within a couple of years, her husband got reassigned to Japan. And her fear at the time was that means the end of my career at Dell. And Her boss and the team in Japan actually found a role that was a great fit for her in Japan, and she moved. She's moved five times subsequently with Dell, and has built a career there. And she was just she was sharing the story with us about how rare that is. That you know, what's often called trailing spouses of active duty military members often have a hard time getting and finding jobs, let alone building careers. And so, the 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 kicker on that one was her take is. Dell has my loyalty. This is I'm never leaving Dell because they've done such a great job for so long taking care of me and my family, you know, that that I they've earned my loyalty in that way.
0: Yeah, and you also shared in the book a personal story about how the true embracing of flexibility allowed you to be a better father, a better husband.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, to some degree um man hindsight is 2020. I wish I knew n- I wish i knew a decade ago what we know now the past two years have opened up my eyes as well in terms of all the times that i would have gotten onto a train or a bus to make an hour plus commute to an office to be in the room where it happens for some meeting that felt important um, that really wasn't that important in the scheme of things but that meant that being able to be there for the soccer game was more challenging than it should have been and i skipped some of those so, you know, I there's a lot in the book that is about how do we take advantage of this moment to create a more level playing field for people? Because I see it with my with my partners, my co-authors. I see it in the world around us. There's a real opportunity to say, look, focus on the outcomes, focus on what someone's responsible for delivering, not on, you know, presenteeism and the hours that they're showing up. And not only do you get better results because you have to be clear about the outcomes, but you also have a much more inclusive environment where everybody yeah, can thrive, and where Swami honestly, you get, get rid future, of some of the. There's also documented issues around rest. flexibility stigma for men. That you know, historically, if things. men say that they you know need some flexibility to deal with the child care issue, in some organizations, that's frowned upon.
0: So here today, Twitter fired a guy on paternity leave, and they're asking whether or not it was legal.
1: Just I happened. have not heard
0: and that I, one. Yeah, yeah I've yeah, not heard that. Happened a few minutes ago.
1: Yeah. Did not, did not hear that one, but interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's remarkable to me as I did some research from my new one about how pro-employer we are in this country. Now, you could say that's good, it's bad. I'm not debating the point. I'm just saying it is. I know that in, I think it's Estonia, you get 18 months of paid parental leave, and that's the law. And yeah, there are companies that are progressive, like Microsoft and Netflix and Amazon, da, 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 but it's not compelled and I actually detected reading the book uh, kind of an optimistic tone that this is an opportunity for us to reset expectations around work and be better fathers and spouses and citizens and, and not tax the environment so much because to your point, we have to get on a bus to commute because we have to be in the room.
1: It, it's We have to do this. And it's a huge opportunity. So a lot of people see this as, you know, there are, there are a set of executives out there that see this as, we just need to get back to the way that things were. The way that things were worked really well for a certain portion of the population, right? It didn't work for a lot of other people. The the opportunity here, if you're thinking about this and you're a forward-leaning executive and you want to lead a decade from now, is think about all of the untapped potential in all of the caregivers out there, in all of the people who do not look like a white male majority, who, who want to kick behind just as much as anybody else, who want to drive results who want to feel like they belong in an organization and your opportunity to disproportionately take that talent from places that are not giving them the flexibility that they need. It's a huge opportunity for competitive advantage. I love what Airbnb has done recently too as well, right? Think about like 800,000 job applicants after Airbnb announced their, um, their shift to a more digital first way of working that doesn't just mean that they can recruit more broadly than just the city of San Francisco. It means they get their pick of top talent from a sure. much broader, much more diverse talent pool. And w- <laughs> talent is the number one issue on the CEO's agenda, even ahead of inflation in every survey that we, that we look at. So this is an opportunity that is great for individuals and contributors and for diversity and inclusion. It's also a huge opportunity if you're a leader, To rethink how you work in a way that actually gets you deeper loyalty, engagement, retention with talented people.
0: I I couldn't agree more. I I understand why some people want it to go back to the way that it was. It worked for them, and it's almost like fraternity in a way. I wasn't in one in college, but if you went through hazing, you may have hated it. But then other people underneath you have to go through hazing. I, I feel like that mindset is at least partially there. But to your point, if a decent number of companies say, we're going to do it this way, then I think the pendulum clearly shifts over to the employees. Well, doesn't matter. I don't have to move my family. I don't have to look for new school systems. I can take a job that's mostly remote or hybrid. And, and as you were saying with future form, maybe get together once a quarter, once a month. But I, I don't think that it's going to take even a majority necessarily of employers to do that.
1: That's right. And it's not just tech companies. We, we talk about Levi Strauss and company in the book. And Tracy Laney, who's the chief human resource officer, and some of our discussions with her Levi's really saw this as an opportunity for them to actually um, do two things. One is it was the opportunity to get a more diverse talent pool because San Francisco is a challenging environment to actually hire black knowledge workers in because of the population isn't as big as it is in the southeast of the United States. But the other thing is you talk to Tracy, you talk to other people and say, You've got talented people that you've been turning down historically because they won't move to San Francisco, right? So think about all the people that all of us have encountered for decades where you're like, Oh, but they just won't move because it's too expensive. Or we tell the story in the book of Harold Jackson who uprooted his family from Kentucky to San Francisco. And then they had to go back because it just didn't work. So the opportunity to, to grab and that talent. And get them engaged in your company more broadly is is huge, and it's not just a tech company thing either.
0: Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I met him at the uh, com- front, uh, Frontiers conference in San Francisco. He's the first and you know, in, investor analyst relations guy.
1: That's absolutely right. Harold built the analyst relations function at Slack. Sheila, um, one of my co-authors, hired Harold in the first place, uh, convinced him to to move from Kentucky to San Francisco. He was actually commuting back and forth. Uh, for the job for a while, then uprooted his family. Uh, and after a while, you know, families need infrastructure, right? You need support. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't when you move. They had to move back. Harold's one of the stories, I've done this myself too, where pre-pandemic, if someone said they wanted to work remote, it felt like you're putting them on a PIP, on a performance improvement plan sometimes, right? Now we've almost inverted that. And we had a great discussion with a series of executives this morning where somebody said they had literally had inverted that. If a manager wants to declare a job isn't available for remote, they have to say why they have to tell you why that job needs to be done in person because it's the, the recruiting potential is so much greater. If you're even, you know, Salesforce recently announced that what they're doing is not based on city and location, it's time zone, right? because there are needs for teams. Slack's engineering team did the same thing. You have to be within a three time zone span of your, of your core team, right? Because it's, it is very hard to dial in from Tahiti to, to a San Francisco set of meetings. But if you think about it that way, the aperture opens up so much more broadly um, to who you can hire, and you're not asking people to uproot and move.
0: I think it's difficult to get people to ask that question. I was just watching on, I think it was CBS Sunday Morning, an interview with Ken Frazier, who used to be CEO of Merck, and Jenny Renetti, who was the former CEO of IBM, and they started a foundation to help people get jobs without college degrees because it's so expensive. And they did this um, internal study at IBM, and they asked all the managers, "Does your job need a college degree?" And at first. They all said, of course it right? But so don't right. really look at it. And I think they wound up saying it was something like only 60%. So if 40% don't need it, then you're, to your point, you're increasing your hiring pool. And maybe that person does go back to college to get the degree, at 22 or 23 when they've already made some money and know more about what they want to do versus just being 18 years old and studying philosophy and realizing hey, when you graduate, I shouldn't have done that, but you've got $200,000 in debt.
1: Absolutely. And I was talking to someone from LinkedIn who's on the learning uh, side uh, earlier today about there, there's this aspect that actually is really beneficial of lifelong learners, right? That we really want to see continue to develop. And for a lot of people, that four year program isn't, is out of reach economically, or it's out of reach because of their family situation. And so how do we help those people find and land, you know, better jobs and grow into it? The other side of this is, you know, that learning mindset is actually what we want executives to take in this case too. It doesn't end just because you got into, you know, a se- the senior ranks of your organization. Part of what we talk about in the book is the companies that we've seen be most successful are the ones where the executives are willing to say, "We don't have all the answers here." There's there's this real need, uh, and we we get into some of the tips and tricks and toolkits for doing it in the book to engage your organization directly in the conversation. And that doesn't doesn't mean that everything is open all the time to everybody, but figure out how do you pull together a representative task force to wrestle through the sets of issues that are going to impact different people in different ways. I'll give you a quick example. Um, When we were doing this at Slack, because I lead the Digital First Task Force, one of the things that we set up was a group of people that represented different functions around the globe that could actually weigh in on draft proposals for policy. But then we took it out and shopped it with our employee resource groups. And the Abilities ERG, as an example, uh, had some very different challenges that Digital First was presenting them than was being faced by caregivers and was being faced by Mahogany, the black employee ERG. And so understanding what they were facing helped us craft better policies and better practices. And that wouldn't have happened if it had simply been the executives sitting in a room by themselves, crafting policy and, and putting it out there. We've seen the same thing. We talk about Royal Bank of Canada in the book also, and Helena Goschling, who's who's their chief people officer, and some of what they did, which is very similar. So you can do this in organizations that are not only, you know, Slack's 4,000 people, Royal Bank of Canada's tens of thousands, including having to think about bank tellers, right? Including to think, having to think about people who show up in branches. And so figuring out how you're going to engage them directly in the process they'll have more ideas than you're going to have sitting in that room in the first place.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I really liked about the book is that it isn't necessarily this 10 point plan. You, you come right out and say, here are some tools, here are some ideas, but experiment, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, yeah. I, I think it's, um, imperative to do that. But I I question whether some folks will need to get their asses kicked quite frankly by seeing, you know, 40% turnover in a division before they go, okay, this isn't working, right? Because what worked you know, pre-pandemic doesn't necessarily work now. And it also strikes me that if work is going to be hybrid, and I think you and I would agree on that, just a matter of degree, then why isn't education or medicine, right? Why do I have to drive in and wait an hour to ask my doctor a simple question when I could do it over Zoom or Skype or whatever? Yeah,
1: and and personally, telemedicine's been a great benefit for me. <laughs> There's been more than a few appointments that have been uh, doing it that way. The, mm-hmm. the experimentation thing is is really critical. I agree. The taking you're not going to get it right the first time. So not only up front is it saying one of the phrases we used internally was progress, not perfection. Right? We want to make continuous progress. When we talk with other companies that are wrestling with this, one of the first things that we talk about is there's probably some part of your organization that's already experimenting with some of this. There's almost always these little pockets of innovation where somebody has said, hey, look, my team operates a little bit differently, or I want to try something different. Finding them and bringing that out into the light to help other people understand what they're doing, those habits and practices, they're, they almost always exist. And in a lot of ways, that becomes essential to proving to the rest of the organization that change can happen because it's happening right here. And so fostering that, supporting that, giving them the resources, turning those people into champions is really important if you actually want to make broader change. It's, it's back to some of the traditional change management uh, challenges. You don't do it top down. You don't do it all at once. You find ways to iterate, to experiment, um, and you find ways to get feedback and you find ways to share the success stories uh, and that's what drives momentum and makes that change, you know, kind of stickier and able to grow.
0: Yeah. And I don't see how you make everyone happy, right? I mean, some people are going to have to find whether it's at a junior level or a senior level, you know, and then that's okay, right? Yeah. Because we're ta- we're not talking about minor shifts here. I mean, I think the title of the book is appropriate because you know, this is how the future will work. This isn't all right. Well, to, to your point, you know, one company might say come in on one day versus another. If you think about it, it's kind of arbitrary, right? Yeah. And even in, I think, um, the different uh, functions, as you mentioned, it just doesn't make sense to have this one size fits all world. But I know there are folks who do better with rules, and, and I understand it, right? God knows I'm a slave to certain types of rules. But um, I, I, one of the other points I think you made um, great minds think alike. Um, you ever heard of a guy named Dob Seidman? He wrote a book called How about a decade ago. He was on trial, no, huh? he was talking about it. The basic premise of the book, and you'll see where I'm going with this shortly, is that rather than have a whole bunch of complicated rules, right? Don't do this according to paragraph six, sub paragraph four, right? Sentence three. You're better off having a number of principles. So a great example is Google: "Don't be evil," right? <laughs> right. That's pretty broad. That's yeah. a lot different than, well, no one told me I couldn't do X or talk to this person this way on a Saturday. Da, da, da. And it sounds like you've also embraced that sort of principle-based mindset of not having pages and pages of rules because it's just going to get complicated. What can I do? Versus having intelligent principles, overriding ones. Say, all right, does this make sense, to your point, because we are still experimenting?
1: That's right. And the, 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 we talk about the step one in the book is principles. <laughs> it's how do you develop uh, off of purpose and principles what you're trying for? Because if that's actually not your starting point, if you can't get senior management alignment around what your principles are, the rest of it becomes much harder. And in, a, in an interesting way, so when I sat with, with Slack's executive team and we were going through this, we had, boy, I'd say a four to six page long Quip document that was full of You know, questions that we had around policy type of stuff, and what quickly became apparent was even to us that those policy questions were were much more easily resolved if we had a set of overarching principles. And we ended up developing three. So ours were flexibility uh, is essential in terms of ensuring that we've got access to the broadest, most diverse talent pool, and that we're able to allow people to get to be productive on time that works for them. Second one was around connection and that we want to continue to foster connection. We see offices not as the de facto way of doing uh, work, but actually as being an important tool. And so one of the phrases we use is digital first doesn't mean never in person. We want to make sure that people understood that there were going to be expectations that you come together episodically, you know, four times a year, as an example. But the third one was going back to some of the data that we've seen and we know and we feel from a diversity inclusion perspective that we know different people have deeper needs for flexibility. So it was the third principle was we're going to create a level playing field for opportunity. And that third one has probably been the most essential in some ways because it then conditions a lot of what we call guardrails, which is what are the behaviors that you want to put in place? And that actually started with the executive suite as well in terms of how frequently do execs show up in the office. What happens to that old C-suite that was a floor in the building? How do you handle hybrid meetings? Just a lot of executive lead-by-example opportunities there that we've outlined both in the book and and in practice. And in the book, we get into Royal Bank of Canada's principles and guardrails and IBM's principles and guardrails. And it's just we've seen time and again, companies struggle with here's the policy dictate, which Yes, it's very clear, but one size fits none too often. Mm-hmm. Um, or we've seen people, you know, the, 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 coming at it from a principle perspective is much easier than to be iterative around it as well, to tr- test things, see if they fit against that principle, try them out, see if it works in practice.
0: Yeah, I think if you take as a starting point, you want a level playing field, then something like if one person dials in, all people dial in, becomes sort of a natural outgrowth of that, Right.
1: Absolutely. And the place we've done that the most in terms of like one screen per person or one dials in, all dial in is the executive review. So one of my favorite things came out of uh, Tamar Yohoshua and Cal Henderson, CPO and uh, chief technology officer at Slack, who basically took their weekly review meetings and said, they are one screen per person. But on top of that, we're not going to even book a conference room Um, just to make it, you know, make the dynamics super clear and easy. Even if two or three or four of them are in the office together, we're all going to dial in separately because those meetings are the ones where you got the greatest distance between a C-level executive and an individual contributor. Mm-hmm. And that's where that sort of power dynamic can come into play in terms of people wanting to be in the room where it happens. It's much easier to manage that if there's not a room where it happens, if it's all on virtual
0: Good stuff, Brian. I'll get you out of here on this. What book are you reading or show are you currently watching?
1: I just finished up uh, Linda Groton's book also on Future of Work, whose title I have now forgotten momentarily. But Linda's latest came out two weeks ago. It's also really good. It's a, It's a different level and orientation from ours. Ours is more playbook and how to hers is more overall overarching kind of corporate design and organization design, Hmm. but it's really good. And then the one that I'm meaning to crack open is Alan Murray's book on purpose, uh, in organizations. Alan is the CEO of fortune. Um, I've read a lot of Alan's stuff. I've talked to him extensively about it. It, uh, it showed up on my doorstep last week. It has been an insane week. I'm going to read Alan's book on the plane to New York tomorrow.
0: Good stuff, Brian. Thanks for taking the time. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday, however, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.